Welcome to Thought Crime and Keto Crime, where Tracy does the sleuthing so you don't have to. Hey everyone, welcome to Thought Crime and Keto and Crime, and yes, I'm in a different setting. I have come over to my grandmother's house, it's on the same property that we live on, and I am doing my video, because she's not here, I am doing my video in her dining room. A, I'm going to try to start doing my videos here so that there's no noise, there's no background noise. I know it's several people working from home, from my house. I'm no longer there by myself, so it's hard to uh, do stuff without having to rearrange a room or having somebody cough or walk through. So it's just kind of, I don't have my own studio area there. So uh, just trying to make do. But anyway, I'm here. I'm alone. And we're about to delve into a pretty heavy to topic. Columbine. Yeah, this one's going to be rough. This one's going to be hard. Because not only was this a tragedy to end all tragedies, it was the granddaddy of all mass, especially school shootings that we've had since 1999. A lot of copycats copy this one, sadly. And uh, this was also, a lot of people don't realize, this was also a copycat. So we're going to get into that. And I know I kind of look, bleh, I need a haircut. <laughs> There's nothing I can do for my hair that will not escape the fact your girl needs a haircut. So I apologize. I'm just going to end up having to cut it myself or get my wife to cut it. But this is what, this is the reality of quarantine. So I hope you enjoy it. I mean, not this, but I hope you enjoy the video. Let's get into it. So Columbine. An unincorporated area a few miles west of the Denver suburb of Littleton, Colorado. And a lot of people say that Columbine was in Littleton. It may be now, but at the time, it was an unincorporated area. It really wasn't part of Littleton. It was just a few miles west of Denver. So people often say Littleton. Technically not correct. Just thought I would bring that up. Like I said, could possibly be part of Littleton now, but then it wasn't. It was in an area of Colorado known as Jefferson County. Um, the area went through quite a transformation in the 90s. Uh, it started out as what I'd like to call Old Columbine versus New Columbine. Basically, in the eight, 70s, 80s, not, early 90s, a lot of what I would call country people. Houses spread far out, um, a mixture of people, let's just call it, for the sake of argument, redneck Columbine versus new Columbine. In the mid-90s, you had an influx of jobs in the way of defense contractors like uh, Boeing, McDonnell Douglas, as well as you already had a huge presence of the United States military there. NORAD is in Colorado in the Rockies. You had the Air Force Academy not far away from uh, this area in Colorado Springs. So you had a huge influx of military personnel as well as defense contractor personnel. And with defense contractors comes high pay. So you had a lot of new suburbs springing up new brand new designer homes you know developers coming in and buying out a whole range of property and basically installing homes that look pretty much the same but are really high end so 
That's the model that we're going to start with just before this happened in 1999. You had the old country folk starting to be kind of pressed out or having to assimilate with the new upper middle class that was descending on the area. And you had a lot of the same types of people there. You had people that knew each other, because think about it. Um, Boeing alone employed about 1,800 people in the area, so that's a lot of families. So you had a lot of people that had similar interests, and with them came what I like to call a new revolution in religion. The area before was just a lot of mainstream Protestant religions. You had, you know, your uh, Episcopalians, your Methodists, your, you know, um, basically what we know as Baptists that are outside the Southern Baptist Convention, just your basic midline Protestants dominated the area and a lot of Catholics too. And then with this new wave of people coming in from other countries, you had an insurgence of evangelical Protestants. Now, these are the ones you see on television with the huge mega churches and the camp meetings and the ones that actively try to pull you into their religion, whereas, you know, you got your your mainline people over here that, you know, they kind of demonstrate their faith, but they don't really try to bring people in all that much. But evangelicals really take Christ's commission to, you know, the, the ultimate. So they... They built a lot of mega churches in the area. Um, Trinity Christian Center, which basically took place at Columbine High School and in a community center near there. And you also had West Bowles Community Church, not far from Columbine. These were your typical, you know, think any number of Christian movies you've seen where you've seen a mega church, that's what you, you had there. And so as a result, you had the Catholics and the mainline Protestants kind of having to mingle with these evangelical Christians that had clubs at school, that started student-ran clubs, that walked around with the member of the What Would Jesus Do bracelets. You had a lot of that there. Demographically, it was a majority white area. Um, you did have a few African Americans, uh, Latino and Native Americans in the area, but for the most part, it was white. And the only reason I'm telling you this is because Demographics play a huge role in the massacre as we get close to it. Um, and as a result, it wasn't all bad. Early Columbine High School was a kind of a makeshift school. Um, it had temporary walls. It had, you know, pull-out accordion walls that could be pulled out into larger rooms to make smaller classrooms. So it was one level. So you had, you know, kind of a country school. And then with all the new, more affluent people moving in, with all the new influx, you had a re complete rebuild of the school. It went from a one-story schoolhouse with uh, temporary walls to a brand new structure with a second story, brand new state-of-the-art library. Above what would become the most important part of the school just because of its communal area. You had the cafeteria, and then outside you had the walls of the school kind of coming out into a design of different sidewalks known as the commons. And that's where a lot of what we're going to talk about today takes place. So you had a whole new school built. You had a new resurgence of the football team, which was known as the Rebels. And you also had... Um, a bigger divide between new Columbine and old Columbine. There were still some leftovers of that rough country uh, that you had seen there. A lot, some of the teachers were from old Columbine and that they had been at the school for years. Among them, Coach Dave Sanders.
who would be one of the heroes to come out of this uh, tragedy, even though he lost his life, he would be known as one of the heroes. He, he coached seven sports at the school. He uh, took the girls' basketball team from an absolute slump to a state championship. A very well-loved teacher, but he was definitely old Columbine, and it, he was quoted in the definitive book on this subject as saying that you could tell who was old Columbine versus new Columbine by who showed up at the Columbine Lounge on Friday nights, and this was just your tough honky-tonk, redneck sort of bar, and it was a place that he frequented, and you could you could tell who was kind of redneck versus who was upper-middle-class yuppie, for lack of a better term, even though the term yuppie went out with the 80s. But that's the area that we're going into. Um, for the most part, this was America. This was mid-America. Um, this was a place that everyone thought was uh, would remain untouched by tragedy, um, just because of the sparseness of the population. I mean, Colorado is today one of the top 10 fastest growing states, but that wasn't true in the 90s. In fact, you have that whole western area, Colorado, Nevada, Utah, they're all, the North Dakota, they're all like in the top 10 fastest growing states, mostly because people are leaving California and Washington, which are becoming overcrowded. And so you see a huge influx of population now, but then sparsely populated. So everybody thought, very little chance of anything bad happening there. Occasionally you would get your crazy anti-government, you know, person like the Unabomber or Timothy McVeigh, you know, camping out in a in his own land somewhere in the Rockies or somewhere in the woods, but they really wouldn't hurt anybody. Um, at least there, they would go elsewhere to do their crime. So that was just kind of the area that we lived in. It was into this area that the subjects of our video were born into and migrated into. Let's get into it, shall we? Let's talk about our two perpetrators. Um, Eric David Harris. Born April 9, 1981 in Wichita, Kansas. His father, Wayne, had advanced to the rank of major in the United States Air Force. He was a pilot. His mom, Catherine, was a homemaker, as a lot of military brides tend to be because you move around so often. He had an older brother named Kevin. And he was always kind of a, a shy kid. Um, in fact, he was so far under the shadow of his brother that um, when he played, he, he played Little League, he played Pee Wee football, he played all kinds of stuff as a kid, mostly because of pressure put on him by his father, but he had a hard time making friends because they moved so often. In Eric's young young life, they lived in a total of about 11 different towns near six different military bases, spanning the areas of Kansas, Ohio, Michigan, New York, uh, and then finally into Colorado. And you've got to imagine, if you ever talk to a military child, they will tell you that the moving around is one of the hardest things. It affected Eric a lot. He uh, had a hard time making friends, and he became painfully shy because he felt he couldn't live up to both his father's unique standards being a military officer and his older brother Kevin, which just seemed to excel at everything. 
And uh, like I said, he played Little League sports, but his coach was quoted, his Little League coach was quoted as saying he he wouldn't even swing at the ball during games because it wasn't because he was afraid of the ball. It was because he was afraid of missing the ball. And it took a lot of coaching and cajoling from from his friends, from his uh, co, uh, from his teammates, to actually get him to swing at the ball. That's how introverted this young man was. He did have some interests, though. Um, he loved fireworks. He loved loud noises. He loved guns. He loved bombs. And he was kind of a pyromaniac. Um, as a child, he loved to play with matches. His parents had to watch him quite a bit. And then as he grew, Eric was never really ever exposed to a lot of close-knit people. In fact, Wichita, Kansas was the largest city he ever lived in, if that tells you. And then Wichita is not that big. I know I've done comedy there. Um, I'm sure it was even smaller in the 90s. So he, his life was his family and his immediate acquaintances. And as I said, he loved fireworks, fire, you know. And then he got into more mainstream activities like video games and computers. As I said, he was very quiet and was afraid of failing. Uh, he did okay in school, but never really put forth any aspirations of being anything. I mean, as far as being a specific vocation. And then on the flip side, you had Dylan Bennett Claybo. He was born September 11th, 1981, to Thomas and Susan Klebo. Thomas was a engineer for in the oil industry. He was also a very successful real estate developer, buying and flipping properties, as well as renting them out. Uh, his mom, Susan, was a special education teacher. He also had an older brother by the name of Byron. Whereas Eric's family was of the traditional evangelical type of religion, Dylan had a mixed family. He was raised Lutheran. His father was a Lutheran. His mother practiced Lutheranism. But she was actually from a very close-knit Jewish family. And she introduced both Byron and Dylan to the Jewish religion growing up. So they kind of had a good understanding of both. And this would lead to a little bit of tension between him and Eric later on, which we'll get into. He was a very polite child, a good child, didn't really get into trouble. Susan doted on both of her boys. Both of the, uh, both of the Klebolds were pacifists. They didn't believe in violence. They didn't like guns, and they raised their children to be the same. Unlike Eric's father, who was military, raised both of his children hunting as well as shooting and, you know, and then having sons interested in things like fire and video games and things like that. So it's a very di different atmosphere for the two children. Now wait, before you say I'm getting on, I'm not wanting to get into a gun control debate. Gun control is a part of this that we will talk about at the end, but I believe in the Second Amendment. I also really believe in responsible gun ownership. And do I believe that just because Eric was raised in a military family, that's the reason this happened? No, I don't. I'm just telling you the contrast between the two boys. So just, just wanted to put that out there. Um, like Eric, Dylan played uh, sports. He was uh, in the T-ball league. Then he graduated up to Little League Baseball and soccer. He was also a Cub Scout. 
and he developed his very first close friendship with uh in the first grade with his friend brooks brown who will play a very important part in this as well and they lived near each other they hung out all the time and it would later be um dylan that introduced eric to brooks and they would develop kind of a friendship it was a little weird but we'll get into that he grew up near the columbine area and it was in 1996 that they actually moved into the neighborhood that he was living in when the whole incident went down so it was also about this time that the harrises left new york and moved to colorado for two reasons because budget cuts and cutbacks during the peacetime of the 90s uh the military was downsizing the military was not immune to monetary problems and physical problems and they were downsizing and as a result a lot of officers and longtime enlisted men were forced into retirement and wayne harris was one of them so he was forced into retirement and he took a job with one of the defense contractors in Colorado and brought his family in 1996 to the Columbine area. About the same time as when the Klebolds left Littleton proper and moved further out to Columbine. Both became fast friends along with Brooks Brown and Eric's uh, friend, Nathan Dykeman. They became a very close-knit group of four and were friends all the way through elementary and into high school. It's here that I would like to say that they all live happily ever after, but we know that that's not the truth. Uh, Dylan and Eric were a bad influence on each other, and both Nathan and Brooks, even though they went along with a lot of their angst, really saw that the two were not good for each other. Brooks later on would, would say these things in a post-Columbine interview, but they, they got each other into a lot of trouble. Uh, Eric because he was always kind of a kind of a pacifist and kind of demure, he would follow along with whatever Eric said. And so Eric would bring him into his playing with fire and fireworks and shooting guns and things like that. Though Dylan had to keep all that stuff secret from his parents because his parents were pacifists. They would not let him have played with any of those stuff, any of those things. So it was kind of secret. Um, Dylan was also, as far back as ninth grade, suffering from depression. This would be evident in the journals and diaries found after his death in 1999, but he was a very depressed young man. Um, chronic depression is a killer. It really is, and it definitely was in this case. And he wrote a lot in his journals about suicide, grotesque pictures of death, and weapons. He had his own fixation with weapons. But it was more about generalized harm and harming himself rather than harming others was the big difference between he and Eric. Eric wrote about the same sort of things except all of his were directed at other people. The boys at Columbine, the four boys, Nathan, uh, Brooks, Eric, and Dylan were bullied. They were definitely bullied uh, by the more popular kids at school. Columbine was not immune to cliques. Uh, I was bullied in high school. I didn't really have a clique. I was kind of a loner. Uh, these four were kind of loners. They were, to, to quote some of the people that have studied the case, they were kind of the losers of the losers, as bad as that sounds. They were the outcasts from the outcasts. They didn't even fit in with the geek squad. 
for as much, for as much. They just kind of hung out on their own. Uh, they were accused of being part of a club known as the Trenchcoat Mafia. That was not true. We will go into that a little bit when we get to the end of the case about theories. But they were not part of the Trenchcoat Mafia. And they were just kind of loners that concentrated on their schoolwork and kind of kept to themselves. They had other interests, which we'll get into. But as a result of being bullied, Eric started to show aggressive aggressiveness in his writings. His journals, after they were found, showed a lot of interest in hurting others, as well as his fascination with Adolf Hitler and the Nazis, as well as the KKK. He wrote about genocide and killing. He was definitely on his way to being a white supremacist. I'm not going to sugarcoat that. Uh, so Eric had a lot of problems. And as a result, depressed, young, depressive, impressionable Dylan kind of followed along because this was his best friend and he didn't want to lose him. So he kind of, he was a strong personality that he kind of followed on, much like his parents that kind of led him down the road to their beliefs. Here was Eric leading him down the road to his beliefs and Dylan lapped it up. There were a lot of warning signs way before, way before April 20th, 1999 that showed that these boys had a lot of issues. Um, going all the way back as far as freshman year with fights and uh, all of their classwork assignments, homework, they wrote about grotesque things. I mean, I know kids can be, as a kid, I wrote about grotesque things. I loved horror films as a kid. I would write about some of that stuff, but so I understand why maybe all of this stuff didn't raise a whole lot of, you know, a whole lot of eyebrows with the teachers because it is kind of typical for kids to be into gross things but they took it way too far and it started they started to act out on some of this stuff by the time they were juniors and seniors as early as 1998 there were a lot of warnings one a specific incident with a young lady named tiffany typer who was in eric's german class uh eric wanted to be a ladies man um i've heard a lot of accounts that he died a virgin i've also heard accounts that he lost his virginity to a 23 year old at the age of 17 so and that he was kind of a ladies man he had no problem getting girls um so i've heard both sides what's true probably somewhere in the middle i think he probably did get some girls but probably not a womanizer but he did tend to attach himself onto certain women. He would get a fixation on certain girls, and those were his his main focus of all his, of all his attention. And Tiffany was one of those. They had become acquainted in German class. She was friendly to him. They talked. He tried to ask her out. He asked her to homecoming specifically. She did go with him. Um, but then after homecoming, she kind of lost interest. He took homecoming as an indication that they were now a couple. She didn't see it that way. And when she went on with her life and started socializing with other boys, uh, Eric kind of snapped. But instead of hurting her or hurting anyone else, he faked suicide. Uh, one day it's uh, after school on the commons area. He faked, he splashed himself with fake blood, pretended to shoot himself and collapsed on the ground in front of Tiffany. She ran over, of course, to see if he was okay when he woke up and told her that it was just a joke. And, everybody, and he and Dylan and Brooks and Nathan started laughing. 
she became incensed. She got up, she yelled at him, as anyone would, got up and yelled at him saying, you need to seek some help, and walked away, never spoke to him again. If only he would have sought that help. Um, along this time, they started, Dylan and Eric started, this was 98, you know, November, December of 1998, they started dressing in all black, including combat boots, wearing black trench coats, some, even though they weren't part of that specific group of kids or club that wore them, the, the mafia, so to speak. They started wearing those dark clothes, dark glasses, and it was then that Susan Klebold started noticing a change at home in her son. He was a lot more repressed. He kind of went into himself. He spent a lot more time in his room. He really wouldn't talk to her. Uh, when they went, when he, she would take him out to try to, you know, have a, a nice evening with him, take him out to dinner, he would wear the black trench coat, the dark glasses, and just have the sullen look. Now, Dylan was not a small person. Dylan was over six foot tall. He uh, was very tall, lanky. He was kind of a menacing character. He could be, especially in a trench coat and dark glasses. And there was an incident in a restaurant in, out in Littleton where they went that he wore the black trench coat and the dark glasses inside the restaurant. And Susan said she noticed out of the corner of her eye that people were uncomfortable. They were staring at him. They were moving purposely away. It was obvious that they were just very uncomfortable with his appearance. And she actually mentioned it to him and said, Dylan, why don't you take off the coat and glasses? You're scaring people. And Dylan just smiled at her, never took off the glasses, never took off the coat. And she says later on in interviews that she wished she had taken control of the situation and made him, but she just thought he was going through a phase, as a lot of parents often do, especially given that Eric had already gotten Dylan arrested once. In January of 1998, Eric and Dylan were arrested for breaking into a computer store van parked in Littleton, stealing tools and computer equipment. They were basically arrested and given a joint court hearing where they pled guilty. It was considered felony theft, and they were sentenced to a juvenile diversion program, which include anger management and probation and community service that would later be expunged from their records. And Susan says at that point she wished she had severed all contact between Dylan and Eric, as well as kind of taken control of her son. But again, I guess all parent, parents, sometimes parents just don't know what to do. Not all parents are perfect, you know. So there was that hanging over their head, as well as the fact it made her really nervous that Eric's parents especially Wayne, seemed to kind of justify what their son did. Oh, it's boys. We had a boys will be boys kind of attitude. Catherine seemed to kind of cower in the, in the, you know, in the gaze of her husband. So she didn't really say anything. So you basically had Eric's father defending all of his actions, saying it's boys will be boys. I got into trouble as a kid. I turned out okay kind of attitude. And Susan said that made her and Thomas really uncomfortable and they said looking back they wish they had severed ties between the two boys getting uh deeper into 1998 
Probably the most intricate thing that happened, um, as I said, Brooks Brown, who was Dylan's friend from childhood, had gotten to know Eric, and they had been kind of a foursome of friends. Um, one morning, Brooks volunteered to pick Eric up for school. He drove to get him. He was late, and he did not call. By the time he got there, Eric was so incensed that he picked up a chunk of ice and threw it at Dylan's car, smashing his window. Um, Brooks immediately called his mom and his mom. His mom immediately came over. They did call the police and report it to the police. And the police basically released him into his father's care. And Eric was forced by Wayne to apologize to Brooks. And it was at that point that Wayne Harris allegedly started keeping a notebook of everything that Eric had done, simply titled Eric. And again, it was a boys will be boys kind of thing. I, I can't even imagine what might have gone on in that house, but that seems really strange. Eric had a basement, uh, a basement bedroom in the house, and he was pretty much had his privacy. And it was there that he kind of indulged his violent behavior by looking up things like the Anarchist Cookbook, reading about Hitler, reading about the KKK, honing everything hateful that he could. He, he wasn't a very ominous looking boy. He was about 5'9", so he was average. But he, so he was, he was much shorter than Dylan, but seemed to have little man syndrome is the only way I can, I can test. And he kind of controlled Dylan with his little man syndrome kind of thing. Um, and it wasn't long after that, the boys got, that Eric got himself back into trouble by setting fires in the neighborhood and going from house to house, filling locks with glue. Little juvenile delinquent, Eric, uh, should have been thrown under the jail by now, but again, again, his military now defense contractor father got him off without any punishment. And again, boys will be boys. Do you see why that attitude can can sometimes be toxic because you had a guy here that was willing just to bury his head into the sand and really believe that anything a boy did was just boys will be boys. I can get behind boys will be boys if they get out and scrape their knees and get dirty and bring home dead ant you know, bring home lizards and turtles and things like I get I get that. That is boys will be boys. I get that. That's even some girls be girls. But vandalism isn't boys will be boys. That's boys need their ass whooped, is what that needs, means. So anyway, it was just bizarre. The more I dug into this, it was just like, wow. And it was uh, right, uh, in early 1999 that Eric, Dylan, and two other boys, not Nathan or Brooks, uh, decided to get even with some students and broke into the Columbine computer system and tried to change students' grades. And again, Mr. Harris took Eric's side, whereas Susan and Thomas grounded Dylan, tried to keep him from seeing Eric, but it didn't really work. So these were some very heavy warning signs that were going down long before. Also, both boys began to escalate what they were writing in their diaries. They started writing more and more about grotesque things in their diaries, as well as in their schoolwork. Again, no one really... People made note of it, but nobody really did anything about it. Um, they started uh, spending more and more time shooting and 
learning to shoot. They were also young filmmakers. They were in a video production class, so they spent a lot of time together with Brooks and Nathan and some other people doing Tarantino-like um, videos, as well as what has come to be known as the basement tapes, um, which only part of them have ever been released, but these are the tapes kind of outlining their manifesto, um, and also as well as saying goodbye to their families about 30 minutes before the incident went down. Uh, most astute right before spring, this was, you know, late winter of 1999, Harris actually wrote in an old yearbook that he wanted to, and a journal, that he wanted to kill Brooks Brown. He felt that he was, Brooks's reason, uh, thought he had a criminal record, kind of ignoring all the other incidents that, um, that he had done that Brooks had nothing to do with. And Dylan also wrote in Harris's yearbook that he wanted to blow stuff up and kill cops. So things were getting really, really dark for Eric and Dylan. Um, it is, it is alleged that in one of the basement tapes, a few of them have been released, but not all of them, that in one of these basement tapes where they just turn on the video camera inside Eric's basement room and just talk about their anger and their need for revenge. In one of these, Dylan actually mentions that he's Jewish. And Eric's demeanor changes. He says, what do you mean you're Jewish? And he goes, yeah, I'm half Jewish. And... It was almost as if their demeanors flipped. Eric seemed very angry, whereas Dylan then seemed more fearful of Eric. And then Eric simply said, well, I guess you can't help everything, can you? And it kind of went on. But it was obvious that Eric didn't like the fact that his best friend was part Jewish. So Eric was a hate ball. That's just, he was full of hate. Dylan was depressed. I think, and had a lot of rage toward people that maybe he perceived had hurt him or just against the world in general because he was depressed. And it would later come out as uh, by Dr. Dwayne Fuselet, who was uh, the FBI agent that investigated this uh, incident, as well as he was a criminal psychologist. He would actually come out and say that it was obvious from... Eric's writings and the video and the videos that he observed, the ones that weren't, you know, makeshift movies, that Eric was your stereotypical psychopath. And Dylan was heavily depressed. And you had somebody that was a psychopath with homicidal tendencies, meeting somebody that was depressed with suicidal tendencies, coming together in a perfect storm of evil. And he said that's kind of what happened here. Um, and now I want to take you through the few days prior to the shooting. This is going to be rough. So let me tell, give you an indication of what their life was like. I think it'll shock you. I, I, I really do because it wasn't as unusual as you might think. They did some typical high school things. Let's get into it. For about a year, the boys had worked at the local Columbine slash Littleton location of Blackjack Pizza. This particular franchise was owned by Robert Kurgis. Uh, Kurgis was 29 years old, but he was kind of a 
young at heart. So he he hung out with his employees. Uh, after they closed, they would go up to the roof every night. They would shoot off fireworks. They would drink beer and just generally shoot the shit. Talk about girls. Talk about everything. So they both loved their jobs. Eric excelled at the job. In fact, he was basically functioned as an assistant manager. He made more money than Dylan. Eric made just over $7 an hour, where Dylan made just over 6 In fact, Dylan had been fired several times from, from the pizza place, and Eric had helped him get his job back. It was also here, through another co-worker named Philip Duran, that they met drug dealer, drug dealer Mark Maines, who would be the one to help them secure some of the weapons they used because they were underage they really could because of their convictions of early they couldn't really buy guns so mark would supply them with the tech nines the tech nine semi-automatic weapons that is often seen on some of the video that you footage you may have seen he would help them secure those through his connections being a drug dealer and it was Philip that would introduce him to Mark, and Mark would help him get the Tech Nines, as well as the ammunition to go with them. And it was through their connections at work that that happened. Also, uh, it was getting close to prom time. We are approaching, we're in April of 1999, and it's prom time. Dylan already has a date, and Eric can't believe it. Dylan will be going with Robin Anderson, who who is a contender for school valedictorian, as well as a very active church member of the Trinity Christian Center that we mentioned earlier when we talked about the mega churches. She was very definitely an evangelical Christian. She wore her What Would Jesus Do bracelet proudly, and she was the picture of a good church girl. She also helped them get the shotguns that they would use during the killing again, because of age and their former convictions, previous convictions, they couldn't just go and buy a gun. So Robin accompanied them to gun shows and helped them buy the shotguns they would use during this. He, Dylan told Robin they wanted to hunt and target practice and also wanted to use them for some of their videos because they made those, remember, Quentin Tarantino type movies. They actually, they're they actually made those movies under their nicknames. Eric's was Rebel, after the Rebel sports teams at Columbine High School. And Dylan's was Vodka, because he liked to drink vodka. And so they would make these very Tarantino-like movies. And she honestly believed that's why they wanted him. She was head over heels for Dylan, even though he didn't really like her that way. She was head over heels for him, and there was nothing he couldn't have asked her that she wouldn't have done. So she went to, with them to the gun shows and helped them get the shotguns and, of course, the ammo as well. Um, at this time, both Dylan and Eric were playing soccer. They seemed to like it. They seemed to love their cl classes, especially their video production classes, and were uh, into making their movies. Two of them, have only two of them have ever been released for public viewing, Hitman for Hire and Rampant Rampage. And... Dylan excelled as an actor. It, it, it's just like he was always so quiet and unassuming that in real life, when he got in front of the camera, he let all of perhaps his passion and his anger 
and everything come out. So he was a really good actor. And I'll insert a couple of clips here. Oh, yeah. Okay, just keep recording so I can... Oh, George, go off me, Elijah, put a No, you goddamn piece of punk-ass shit! Do not mess with that friggin' kid! If you do, I'll rip off your goddamn head and shove it so far up your friggin' ass, you'll be coughing up dandruff for four friggin' months! Look, I don't care what you say. If you ever touch him again, I will freaking kill you. I'm gonna pull out a goddamn shotgun and blow your damn head off. Do you understand, you little worthless piece of crap? Also, in addition to their video production class, they were also taking a bowling elective, which meant they had to be at the local bowling center at 6 a.m. If you saw the Michael Moore documentary, Bowling for Columbine, that's what they were, that's what the title referred to as the bowling elective both boys took. As I said earlier, a lot of cliques at the school, they were subject to bullying from athletes, and as a result, they had both developed that explosive temper, which very definitely came out in their movies. Eric, much to the dismay of his parents by this time, had no college plans whatsoever. Um, he said he wanted to be a Marine just to please his father and get his father Wayne off his back, and said he was going to speak to a Marine recruiter before graduation. Dylan, however, had very different plans. Dylan wanted to be a computer engineer. He had already chosen his college, the University of Arizona, and was planning to enroll there at the fall, uh, in the fall of the next year. So Dylan had a lot to look forward to and was going along as if life was going to go on. But unbeknownst to this happy veneer that they had put on, or he had put on, he and Eric had been planning this murder, this rampage, for over a year. Over a year. And every bit of their planning materials, videos, journals, detailed timelines, were left for the police to find. They both knew it was going to end in their deaths, so they both knew they, weren't be, they wouldn't be seeing graduation. Either of them. But yet Dylan went on with his life planning and seeming excited about it. He was excited about going to the prom with Robin. Eric, because he considered it kind of uncool to go to a prom without a date, was trying to find a date. And he had developed a fixation for a young woman named Susan who worked at the Great Clips hair salon in the same strip mall as Blackjack Pizza and started striking up conversations with her. He got her number. He called her mother or her home one night to speak to her to actually ask her to prom. And her mother said she wasn't there. She was visiting a friend. Eric got so upset, he started raising his voice to her mother. The mother, who I would have hung up if I had been her, was just so shocked. She actually ended up giving Eric Susan's beeper number. Old-fashioned pagers, for those of you that <laughs> were born after that. Um, and he paged Susan. She called him back. They talked. And he accepted uh, she accepted Eric's invitation to prom, which was going to take place April 17th, 1999. Also, the week of the prom, a sale of Blackjack Pizza was finalized, and Robert no longer owned it. The new owner fired almost all the employees except for Eric and Dylan and uh, cut off their uh, rooftop fire sh firework shooting and beer drinking, so that wasn't a thing. But the week of the prom... They both went to the owner of Black, uh, the new owner of Blackjack Pizza and asked for an advance on their salary 
their hours already worked for the prom weekend and they were both given this money. Now let's talk about some uh, before we get back into what happened during this during this timeline, let's get into kind of the logistics around the school. Think about a lunch period. A lunch period. What I mean by that is letter A lunch, because a lot of this focused around the A lunch period. You had the majority of the students that wanted to eat early would go to lunch during A lunch period. Um, the principal of the school had ordered four cameras set up in, com in the commons and the cafeteria to kind of video what was going on. Uh, the principal was always present uh, during a lunch period. He liked to walk around and speak to the students. And Frank DeAngelis was a good principal. He loved to hang out with his students. The students loved to come up and speak with him, and he always made sure he was in the cafeteria during that beginning or the A lunch period. Each day, the uh, one of the custodians of the school would come in just before the lunch period. They would remove the old tape, put the new tape in, so that they would always have a view of what went on in the cafeteria in case something happened. However, Columbine was an open lunch period or lunch school, lunch school campus, which means children with cars. And as I said, this was now trending to be a very rich area. Most of the students had their own transportation. And a lot of the juniors and seniors would leave for lunch. So you had generally a lot of activity. And everybody would walk through the cafeteria because it was just the thing to do to even go out to the junior and senior parking lots, which were on either side of that cafeteria entrance, to get into their cars to go get lunch. So a lunch period was the perfect time if you wanted to do something as, as insane as top the kill counts of both Timothy McVeigh and the Branch Davidians. And that's what Eric Harris wanted to do. He had chosen specifically April 19th, 1999, which was the anniversary of the Branch Davidian Waco incident, where up to that point, it was the one of the largest mass suicides, mass killings in the history of the United States. So he chose the date of his massacre for the anniversary of that mass or of that mass suicide or massacre, whatever your opinion on it on it is. But he wanted to top both that and the destruction that Timothy McVeigh wreaked when he bombed the uh, federal building in the in Oklahoma City. He wanted to kill more than McVeigh and the Branch Davidians put together. And he centered his plan around that beginning lunch period. And this was the plan. From the Anarchist Cookbook, Dylan and Eric had constructed a lot of propane bombs using aerosol, can triggers, and alarm old-fashioned alarm clocks for their triggers. They had also decide and they had also gathered up a huge amount of gasoline and gallon jugs and their plan was essentially to kill as many people as possible and then to die in the subsequent firefight they would first go early the morning of the 19th and they would take one of the propane bombs to a part near eric harris's house and allow it to go off about 11 a.m to cause a diversion and get police over there 
Then, by the time the A lunch period began, about 11.13, that is when the majority of the students that were either going through the cafeteria to get to their cars or there to eat would be there. Approximately four to 600 students would be in that area, or in that general area. After putting the, the decoy in the nearby park, they would go to the school, driving in their own separate cars, Eric's Honda Prelude and Dylan's vintage rehab BMW. They would park one in the senior parking lot and one in the junior parking lot on either side of the entrance. They would then go carrying several, about 12 of the propane bombs into the cafeteria. They would set them under two load-bearing columns that basically held up the second floor and above the cafeteria was the new library. So their plan was to set those to go off at approximately 11.13. When that happened, it would blow the columns. The fireball would kill hundreds of people in the cafeteria. The columns would collapse and the second floor would also collapse, killing anybody that was in the library and finishing off any survivors down below. By this time, Eric and Dylan would have taken up, taken up a position at their cars, one on either side of the entrance, and as survivors started to run out, they would start shooting at them with the Tech Nines and the shotguns. And they fully anticipated killing at least another 50 to 100 people during this before police and school security were able to get them. They both anticipated dying during the fire exchange. Then, because they wanted to still kill more people, they also planted several of the propane bombs in their cars right next to gallons, one gallon jugs of gasoline. When the bombs went off, they would explode, take their cars out, and take out hundreds of people probably in the parking lot, students, teachers, staff, first responders, media, whoever happened to be there, they would take them out as well. So they were hoping for casualty count well into the hundreds, therefore topping both the Branch Davidians and Timothy McVeigh. So the weeks before the incident, they spent a lot of their own lunch periods looking for buying up ammo. They had a goal of having at least 800 rounds of ammo and they were hoping to have that before the 19th, which they had planned for their massacre. But first was prom, which was scheduled for April 17th, 1999 at the Denver Design Center in downtown Denver. Dylan was planning to go with a group of five couples. He and Robin were going with this group in a limo. They first went to the Bella restaurant which is a very fancy um, Italian restaurant in Denver. They went there. Uh, Eric had a huge salad, some pasta, a dessert. He then went outside and chatted with one of his friends while smoking a cigarette and talked about how excited he was to go to Arizona the next year, become a computer engineer, and start his life. He was talking and laughing as if that would happen when he knew that he would be dead, supposedly, by Tuesday morning. So very different, just very weird. That's the only, only thing I can say, just very weird. Dylan and his crew went on to the prom and had a very fine evening. He even danced with Robin to a, a couple of slow songs, had a, had a great time. 
And then they all went off to the after party, which was taking place all the way back in Columbine at the gym, which had been turned into a New York casino night. There was a lot of cutouts of the Statue of Liberty, the Empire State Building, and they basically turned it into a New York-style casino with fake money, of course. Eric, on the meantime, called Susan about 7 p.m. that Saturday of the prom and invited her over. He, instead of taking her to the prom, they just hung out in his basement room. They watched a German slasher film about a spaceship that comes back from hell. Event Horizon was the name. They actually uh, listened to some German heavy metal music, which Eric was very fond of, and that doesn't really surprise me. Not all German heavy metal, but a lot of the German heavy metal falls into a lot of white supremacists listen to it. There's a lot of German underground slasher metal that has a lot of racist overtones, and he was a fan of that type of music. I don't think Susan really knew what it was, but she said she had a very lovely evening chatting with them. Uh, they did kiss before he left. They even spent some time chatting with her parents. She left about 11 and went home. Eric got up and went over to the high school and joined Dylan and his friends at the after party and spent the evening partying away. They then slept most of the day on Sunday. However, waking up on Monday morning, the original planned date of what they were going to do, they realized they didn't have enough ammo. That he did not have the amount of ammo that he wanted for for his plan. So they, he said, we can't do this today. It'll have to be tomorrow. Therefore, changing the date from April 19th, 1999 to April 20th, 1999, incidentally, was Adolf Hitler's birthday. And Eric made note of that. So it makes me wonder if that was planned or... He changed his mind because it was Adolf. So you went from the anniversary of the Branch Davidian incident at Waco to Adolf Hitler's birthday. The story gets more and more evil, I swear. So they contacted Mark Maines, who helped them get the final hundred rounds of ammo. And they woke up Tuesday, April 20th, ready to go, about 5 a.m. And with that, I'm going to end part one of Columbine. I'll be back tomorrow with part two. I hope you'll join me again. Hope you're enjoying it. If you want to support the channel, links are down below. Thanks so much, everybody. Really appreciate all the support. I love doing this. I don't do it for the money, that's for sure. I do it because I love it, and I love that you people seem to, that all of you seem to like it. So please, like, comment, share, subscribe if you want to support the channel or the podcast down below. Until next time, KetoCon.